Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need Home Title Lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Okay, before we start, remember, pardoning a war criminal is good. Firing a Purple Heart winner whose testimony is corroborated by every other witness is good. Uh, Deporting vets, mocking POWs, crapping all over Gold Star families is totally cool. And uh, stealing from veterans with your scam online university is totally acceptable. There you go. MAGA morality update complete. Let's begin. Welcome to the Sanity Cast. I'm John Fugelsang. Good to have you, all you lying dog-faced pony soldiers. How you doing? Uh, this is a very special episode of the show that is all about how to keep your cool while the society around you has gone completely batshit and the Christians have elected Caligula. Because depression is a disease, negativity is a habit, Hannity is the opposite of sanity, and if we're all in this together, then uh, despondency is privilege. You don't get to despair. Get out. 
Get yourself well. Have a life. Remember, it all matters. Remember, Bush was worse in every column. Bush was worse, and we survived it. And get back in the game. This is a very special episode. Uh, I was really happy to sit down for an interview with Professor Harvey Kay. Now, he is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I know his business card is very long. Uh, he's such a terrific talker. He's such a terrific man. He's an award-winning author. He's published 16 books. He's contributed to articles and essays to many major newspapers and periodicals. You've seen him all over TV uh, and Bill Moyers and Tom Hartman and Michael Brooks show. And whenever he's in New York, he's kind enough to come by and do our Sirius XM show. And... Uh, his new book, well, it's pretty powerful. It's um, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. Everything that's good about Thomas Paine, Franklin Roosevelt, Alexander Hamilton, he pours it all in. Um, and he goes deep into the class system in our country and, uh, well, which side is winning? So we sat down at uh, Leap Year Studios in Greenwich Village, had a really good chat. Um, so please listen for that. But something I got to say now uh, before we get into it. Um, after watching Iowa and New Hampshire, I got to say to my liberal friends and my moderate friends in the Democratic Party, guys, you're all doing great. Fight hard. Fight for your candidate. But but can I ask you to consider uh, one thing? Um, hating Bernie Sanders does not help defeat Trump. Hating Mayor Pete does not help defeat Trump. Hating Michael Bloomberg, I know it might feel good, does not help defeat Trump. Hating Joe Biden doesn't help defeat him. Hating Elizabeth Warren is not going to help defeat Trump. I am someone who's really tired of the never-ending Democratic Party war. And I'm not a Democrat. Um, another party forces me to vote that way all the time. So I love Democrats. I'm rooting for y'all. And uh, I, I, I just feel like... I thought this would end after Hillary and Bernie. I, I thought I was so tired of seeing the Margaret Thatcher five-ish Finkel cage match. Um, and yet it continues. And it, it, I will say the candidates have done a good job. Not a lot of negative ads. Uh, when they get snarky, for the most part, it's kind of backfired on them. So it's in many ways, I've been saying that this campaign mirrors 2004, which is a terrible thing to mirror, except that it's not getting all bogged down in negative campaigning yet. And so on behalf of all terrified independents, please, please, please understand that when you hate, if you hate another candidate or that candidate's supporters, uh, if you go around hating centrists, or calling people who like Bernie Sanders socialists when Bernie Sanders not actually a socialist. Um, you're going to have to form coalitions with these people after your guy or gal gets the nomination. So hate wisely, okay, on behalf of all terrified independents. Also because things are, things are, I know things are bad, but I'm a recovering cynic. I'm not an optimist. So I'm able to look at how shitty everything is and also tell you that things are also good. Remember a week ago when all the pundits were telling us Donald Trump had the best week of his presidency? Remember all that? You know, he survived impeachment and he passed his trade policy and he had the great State of the Union and blah, 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 fucking blah. Here's my question to that. Um, can you name what film won Best Picture last year? Can you name who Hillary Clinton's running mate was right now, really fast? See, um, we have the attention span of memento. Donald Trump having a good week in early February means nothing the first week of November. John Bolton's book is coming out in between the acquittal by the Senate 
and then uh, Election Day. So really, really, remember that low attention span that allowed Donald Trump to get away with so much? It swings both ways. Here's some proof. He's underwater. He just he can't stop screwing up. Every time he walks between the raindrops, he has to fuck it up for himself again. The man has no impulse control. His life is one long coke binge. Um, Consider the great week he just had. Consider the economy. Now consider the Quinnipiac poll, February 5th through 9th. Mayor Pete beats Trump 47 to 43%. Senator Warren beats Trump 48 to 44%. Senator Klobuchar beats Trump 49 to 43%. VP Biden beats Trump 50 to 43 percent. Senator Sanders beats Trump 51 to 43 percent. And I saved this for last. Um, Mayor Bloomberg beats Trump by the largest margin, 51 to 42 percent. That's the Quinnipiac poll for this week. And for all the talk about this pathetic Democratic field and who can beat them, they can all beat them. Donald Trump's appeal is not going to get larger. He's not going to get more people to like them. He might be able to get some people to not quit. All this black outreach, you think he really cares about black voters? Black voters aren't stupid. In September, he was polling at a a 3% with black women in the CNN poll. The margin of error was 3.2%. So, you know, diamond and silk. Uh, But um, he's doing all this black outreach, I think, to suburban women suburban white women to try to show that he's not a racist that's all it's about he's talking past african-americans and what about this field we have oh old white men old white men you know here's what you have you have an anti-war jew who wants universal health care you have a woman senator from the midwest uh you have a gay veteran who's a small town mayor you had the asian tech genius well he, he dropped out god bless andrew yang uh, my God, he dropped out and Biden stayed in. So he was right about one thing. Um, Asian guys are better at math than white guys. Uh, you have a billionaire who uh, is a lot less loathsome than Trump and a billionaire who's somewhat less loathsome than Trump. And you have Joe Biden. Um, and you know what? I'm tired of the ageism. OK, uh, you know, Peter Gabriel just turned 70. I'm still dealing with that. That just happened. I don't know how that happened. But Joe Biden, here's what I'll say. The best thing he could do is to uh, drop out of the race right now because then William Barr will still have to go through the motions of investigating Hunter Biden just to save face just consider it at the same time I don't want Joe Biden to drop out because I do believe Joe Biden is running for two reasons number one he really believes that he's the one man who can beat Trump and number two he really believes he should do this And for all the problems he's having, I will say he's one of the two or three candidates who's the best at actually speaking to people from the heart. So look, Trump's had a bad week, and and we have to take heart at that. It's not going well for him. Susan Collins saying, I hope he learned his lesson from impeachment. That just tells us Susan Collins did not learn any lesson from impeachment. You know the lesson Trump learned? The lesson he learned is next time you try to extort and bribe and coerce a foreign leader, Um, on a party line with 40 other people, make sure that three or four of those people have no decency. Don't allow any remotely good people to listen in to your corrupt party line. Look, Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire primary with two moderates, Buttigieg and Klobuchar, right behind him. 
a lot of folks who don't like Bernie Sanders are going to have to get behind the idea that they may be voting for Bernie Sanders. Um, it's sad to see what happened with Joe Biden. Uh, if Bernie Sanders wins more of these, we'll hear more articles about how Amy Klobuchar had a strong third. Uh, I get why people don't like Bernie Sanders. I get why people don't like, like Joe Biden. I really get why people don't like Michael Bloomberg. It's all going to be okay. Hating these people is bad. We're going to have to coalesce around one of them. Any of these people on fire with Tourette syndrome, bleeding out of both eyes, having a seizure, doing the Harlem shake, naked in public, frothing at the mouth, is better than Donald Trump on his best day. Now, Bloomberg, it's really fascinating. No one's done this before. I wonder what you guys think about this. Write to me, by the way, your thoughts on all of this at johnfugelsang.com or on the, the Facebook page. Uh, 35% of his ad money has been spent in the four states with the most delegates, California, New York, Texas, and Florida. Uh, nearly half of his money is on Super Tuesday. Uh, Mayor Pete, Bernie, Biden, Warren, they've spent more than half of all their ad dollars since last January on the early voting states. So Bloomberg is playing a long game, a medium game. Um, and in the middle of it, you see this footage of him talking about stop and frisk come up. Daily Beast had a really interesting piece about how some African-American voters may be willing to accept Mayor Bloomberg's apology because they just want to get rid of Trump, which I respect the argument. I get it. Bloomberg apologized for it. But I want journalists to ask Bloomberg if he understands why stop and frisk was so wrong, because I always thought they should do stop and frisk in Wall Street. That's where all the crime was. Most of the coke, too. Anyway, Trump did this tweet where he called Bloomberg a total racist and in all caps, which is like Trump calling you obese with bad hair. Um, and then he deleted it. But it, it, that's hilarious because Donald Trump himself, while campaigning, in a debate, was praising Stop It Frisk, said it worked incredibly well. He wanted to bring it national. He said that Trump was the only 2016 candidate to call for confiscating guns from Americans. He did it in a debate. Google it. Tell your MAGA man that's what he voted for. MAGA guys voted for the one candidate to talk about confiscating guns. It's not the deplorables, deplorables it's the gullibles. Of course, Donald Trump was talking about confiscating guns from you know who not white guys. So uh, I know Democrats are terrified because if the moderates don't drop out more and should Senator Warren drop out and her support goes to Senator Sanders, there's a very good chance that Bernie Sanders could have an insurmountable delegate lead by the first week of March. Like this could really be over Super Tuesday. And that is freaking people out. I am so worried about Chris Matthews health. I am so worried about Chris Matthews. Is Chris Matthews going to be okay if Bernie gets... If we could harness the hate Chris Matthews has for Bernie Sanders, we could actually have a clean energy source and begin the Green New Deal. It's it's right there. Uh, you know, Trump would not have been the nominee in 2016 if all of the uh, non-Trump candidates had just consolidated around one. If they all got behind Jeb, if they all got behind Marco, that would have beaten Trump. But Trump was doing this Trump thing while the other ones were still fighting. And that's how he consolidated the lead. I understand some Democrats are very scared of Bernie Sanders doing this. Um, and I get that. What I want to say is this. Uh, this is America. And um, we have a Congress. It, let, let's say Bernie Sanders gets the nomination. Well, here's what I'm going to say to you. A couple things. Number one, he can beat Trump. Number two, I know why some of you don't like him. I know many of you don't like him because of the behavior of his online fans. Consider what it would be like if we weaponized 
Bernie Sanders' most aggressive online fans against Trump and Trump supporters rather than moderates. That could happen. But um, Bernie Sanders would be a good president, and he would not be able to do most of the things he's talking about. See, I, I don't know why no one talks about this, but individuals generally don't have any big impact on history. They don't. It's movements. It takes a long time. Uh, you know, it wasn't one individual who ended slavery. It wasn't one individual who brought civil rights. It, it, Bernie Sanders, at best, is carrying the baton. And it will be someone else who implements single-payer health care the day it comes to America. But Bernie Sanders, as president, even if he got 75% of the vote, if it's a Republican Senate, he's never doing most of what he talks about. If it's a Democratic Senate, though, he's never doing most of what he talks about. And Bernie can move the needle. He can get us closer there. And, and so, like, I understand why some folks don't like him, but he's not a socialist. He's not calling to nationalize any industry. And, and now it comes a big time when we have to start calming down. Bloomberg's another matter. And I'll talk more about Bloomberg in a future episode. Because um, let me tell you something. If it comes down to this, Donald Trump versus Michael Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg is prepared to spend billions and billions of his own money to humiliate Donald Trump for the enjoyment of all of us. And once I get the nomination and hand Tom Perez several cat stacks of cash at a contested convention, then I will be able to make my big appeal to the millennials and African-American voters to come out for the charisma that is me. He's great on climate change. He's great on guns. Uh, he would do nothing about the inequality that allowed Trump to happen. Um, and I do believe Bernie Sanders would not be able to get health, single-payer health care passed all on his own. But I also believe Bernie Sanders would sign an executive order declaring a climate change emergency on day one. And um, I support that because I care about the unborn. So, look, either way, just stay calm, don't hate your allies, and know that we're all going to live long enough to see Donald Trump's kids change their last names, especially after this budget. Now, a trillion in cuts to Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act over a decade, tightening the rules over who qualifies for aid. He's going to decrease the number of people on food stamps by over three million. According to an Urban Institute report, he's going to reduce TANF, the temporary assistance for needy families. He cut taxes for the wealthiest. And now the poor have to pay. He gave a speech where he said, we will not be touching your Social Security or Medicare in the fiscal 2021 budget. And then two days later, he, he, he has a budget pitching $800 billion in cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Also, the debt will climb to $30 trillion. But it's okay. He's white and Republican, so they won't mind. Um, he's also going to slash $170 billion from the student loan program over a decade. It's all punishing non-millionaires, all of it. 850 billion for Medicare, 270 billion for Medicaid, 30 billion from Social Security. Yeah, that's right. 850 billion, 270 billion, 30 billion. Just learn those numbers. Cuts to education, cuts to affordable housing, cuts to climate change research, slash food stamps and education, environmental protection, but keep two things. Keep the deficit, keep the tax cuts for the rich. Friends, trying to balance a budget by cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, that's almost as dumb as invading Iraq because you were attacked by 15 Saudis. Uh, and before I go, Roger Stone, right? Uh, now it's getting weird. Anyone know what the hell is going on with Bill Barr? I mean, good God. For those of you who have a life, so Roger Stone, he lies to Congress under oath. He threatened a witness to cover up Trump's campaign contacts with WikiLeaks, found guilty on all charges. And then Donald Trump doesn't mean tweet. And William Barr, the attorney general, I'm sorry, 
the attorney specific. I'm sorry, the henchman specific. Let's stop calling him attorney general. He's the henchman specific. He, he decided to start overruling the prosecutors. There's no independence left in Department of Justice. So I want to salute uh, Jonathan Kravis, Michael Mirando, Aaron Zelensky, and Adam C. Jed, who have resigned in the wake of the president criticizing their sentencing recommendation, and William Barr, who looks like Ralphie from Christmas Story, if he never got the air rifle and grew up hating all people. Um, This is scary. This is really scary. The good news about it is there's no way this looks good in history. I mean, Trump is literally attacking Judge Amy Berman Jackson. He has no impulse control. He's he's like the guy on Coke at the wedding. He just, he won't shut up. He admitted publicly he fired Lieutenant Colonel Vidman in retaliation. And that's going to open up more uh, investigations. Um, Vidman did not lie. Lieutenant Colonel Vinman still has shrapnel in his body. Lieutenant Colonel Vinman did not say anything that wasn't corroborated by only every other witness. So Chuck Schumer is calling for investigations. Um, Sarah Longwell from uh, Republicans for the Rule of Law said ordering subordinates not to comply with duly authorized congressional subpoenas is an offense to the rule of law. And even John Kelly took a break from sucking the blood of orphan migrant children at the border in a private detention center to say that he did the right thing. The corruption is crazy, guys. Comb over Caligula is the first president to actually profit off his own Secret Service detail. You know, like we taxpayers, we pay the Secret Service to protect him. And he charges the Secret Service to protect him by making them pay to stay at his hotels, eat at his hotels, and follow him around in golf carts. He makes them rent so they can protect him. We pay them to protect him, and they have to pay him a second time to protect him. So Lou Dobbs has gone crazy on Bill Barr. Uh, He says it's a damn shame that he doesn't get what this president has gone through. And Lou Dobbs, if you don't know, is a rabid dog who sleeps in a kennel and froths at the mouth. If he's, he's been trained to uh, go rabid if he smells decency in humans. So it's going to get interesting. Do not despair. Remember the best line in Star Wars Episode Nine: Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian. There are more of us, Poe. There are more of us. I just lost all of you with that reference. So I'm going to go to the interview. Um, the book, again, is Take Hold of Our History. Make America Radical Again. It's it's a collection of essays and speeches, but it's really a manifesto. And and Harvey, Professor Harvey Kay of the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay calls this a call for Americans to embrace our radical history. Our conversation goes all over the place. I hope you enjoy. Professor Harvey Kay, welcome to uh, Leap Year Studios, high above Greenwich Village and uh, the Sanity Cast. Yeah, I feel like I'm in high school again. I was 17. My friends and I used to cut out of school in New Jersey, take a bus in and take the train down, wander the village. Me too. I actually moved to the village when I was 17. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. For you. I I had a front row seat for history. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was living here uh, at the peak of um, AIDS activism and uh, ACT UP and all that social movement, which I think led directly to uh, a sitting president endorsing marriage equality during his Mm re-election. That's the reason I believe in the American dream, because I I, I saw progress made in my lifetime where we we saw the swiftest advancement for civil rights of any oppressed minority, one of them, an oppressed minority that's an oppressed minority within every oppressed minority. And yet, and within a generation, we saw the swiftest advancement and it happened because of a plague and it's why I'm excited to talk to you because you really do write about historical movements as well Mm -hmm. and how you know the leaders ultimately Mm -hmm. will follow when the people lead it's really all about popular movements yeah 
The um, it's funny. Do they? I actually began all of this stuff not by way of a leader, but by way of, of a writer, Thomas Paine, mm. as you know, the Thomas Paine and the Promise of America book. But it actually, but it, and it, and as you, I think I told you once, that went back to when I was ten years old, and my family's from Brooklyn, and my grandfather, my grandmother, my father's side had an apartment on Eastern Parkway, right opposite the Brooklyn Museum. And I used to love going to the museum, not for the art, but the Egyptology, because they had an unwrapped mummy there. Mm. And even now, I think, did I really see an unwrapped mummy when I was 10 years old? Because I don't <laughs> think it's there anymore. No, I, now he's working as the Commerce Secretary, <laughs> Wilbur Ross. <laughs> very, very well said. So when, uh, when I couldn't get over to the museum, because I needed either a, a relative or you know, a cousin, somebody like that, I would wander my grandparents' apartment as if it was the galleries of the museum. And my grandfather was a trial lawyer in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. So he kept his law books in his law office, but he kept his personal books in the dining room in the apartment, in the back of the dining room. And I know this is not a visual show, but I'm, I'm using my hand to point to you the end of the dining room, which I can still see in my mind's eye. And I would always go, and I didn't understand it all. Some of them were in Russian, some of them were in Yiddish, and most of them were in English. But I sat, would always sit down in the same place on the floor at just the eye level where all the Thomas Paine books were located by and about. And there was one book sitting right in the middle with a red, white, and blue cover. And this book argued that Thomas Paine was the real author of the Declaration. And I thought, oh, this is great. My teachers are wrong. I can now really make the case. And you know, I would go into school 11, 12, 13, and I did it over and over again to the point where I probably knew I was wrong, but, it became, but he was already mine. So I, so I possessed this figure. But I came to understand that his his place in history was because he could write, and not just write like, so that everyone could understand him. He wrote what everyone wanted to say, but had yet to figure out how to say. Yes, he could put it into words yeah, and articulate and, the heart. Right, and um, by the way, Thomas Paine did not write the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson did, and, if, but, and I can tell you why, and you in particular might appreciate this. It's not only because the, Jeff, the Jeffersonian version is wonderful, but Paine would have made it all the more wonderful because it would have been all the more revolutionary. And I'll give you a prime example. Thomas Paine in Common Sense, the revolutionary pamphlet that launched it all, he called for separation of church and state. As he put it, uh, government has no place, in, uh, no place in religion except to make sure everyone gets to worship it as they please. And the Declaration makes no reference to that question, even though Jefferson might have thought it. He had left that kind of thing, left it out of the Declaration. Later comes, obviously, in the Bill of Rights, and Jefferson himself is the one who coined the phrase specifically separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. but, but what I'm getting at is that it was when I was 10, and I already had an interest in history because the same grandfather, when I was four and five years old, before I could read, when he would come out to our home, when we had moved out to New Jersey, he brought along a golden book Old Testament Bible stories, coffee table size, with lots of phenomenal colored pictures, you know, painting kind of illustrations. And he would weave together the stories of the biblical past with the stories of growing up on the Lower East Side here in Manhattan. And he had been a young socialist before he went to law school at NYU. And so history had this, to me, history was a matter of of meaning, first of all. It wasn't just names, dates, and places. There was a purpose and a meaning to history. But also because the way in which history happened was by way of dissent, exodus, liberation, 
and he just wove it together. And then Thomas Paine came into the picture with this idea of the American self-liberation. And it's only later that I actually started to think in terms of, well, what are leaders about? What, what is a, what, let's, let's talk honestly, what's a good leader about? Well, what's a democratic, small d democratic leader about? And I always imagine that the ones that we most admire, the likes of Lincoln and Roosevelt, they, who are phenomenal speakers and actually phenomenal writers, even though Roosevelt had a team of, of speech writers, the best parts of the speech they all said were his. Right. So what, what, are they, what could they do? Well, first of all, not unlike Thomas Paine, who was an utterly different character, he was a working class background, came from a working class background, but articulated American aspirations, even when Americans themselves hadn't fully thought it through, Lincoln and Roosevelt had a confidence in their fellow citizens. So I, I don't think they I think ever- This is what really, people responded to Barack Obama about as well. Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, it's interesting. I don't put him on their level, but I think that's exactly what so many people found uh, embodied the good leadership qualities right. they liked you, in him. You could hear, well, that's the thing if, with Obama was, he, he had an incredible voice. And I don't mean voice just in sound, that he could, he could express things so marvelously and even use his own body when you watched him to express it. And the shame with Obama was that he didn't take the step into history that Lincoln and, Wash, uh, Lincoln and Roosevelt had taken into history. And I think, it would have, I think it would have been all the more effective if he had reached back, say, to Lincoln and to Roosevelt all the more often. Mm. Um, so, so what I came to see is that a really fine democratic leader is somebody who has confidence in their fellow citizens and doesn't go too far out and doesn't go too far out in front of them until he feels that they're really with him and the and it's not his job just to wait around it's his job to articulate and say what they need saying. I feel like a cheering section, but I think that's exactly what President Obama did say on marriage equality. I mean, he was oh. always for it. He pretended he wasn't. And then he waited till the polls were there and Joe Biden came for it. And then in the middle of a reelection campaign, he knew it was safe to come out and say this. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not disparaging. I would have liked him to have been ahead of the people some more. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Well, what I think it was was this, you know, the thing that haunts me, this is going to take us slightly away from this, but the thing that haunts me about Barack Obama, besides his willingness to put everything on the table in 2011, which, by the way, thank goodness the, the Republicans hated him so much they couldn't even hear what he was saying. It's true. Otherwise, we'd have been screwed at the time. But it's also the case. Here, here's the thing. He, when he ran, I'll never forget, there was a day, and I think he was doing it as part of a group of Democrats, and they were speaking to maybe a predominantly labor audience, and he made this promise that if workers are out on strike, and it was metaphorical, they're out on strike, he's going to get his marching shoes on, and he's going to be there with them. Now, nobody would expect a president to be on the picket line with them, but they would expect signs of support. And in Wisconsin, when Scott Walker was elected, and the legislature you know, was, turned Republican completely, what we confronted was the loss of our rights as public employees to, to organize and bargain collectively. And we occupied the state capitol. I remember. On more than one occasion. And at a certain point, we just, I personally didn't stay. I was there one weekend. But the younger folks, the graduate students and students and people who could spend that time and there were rotations, they were there. And, I could, and I'll also just point out to anyone listening, in all my life, I never had the, I never sensed the democratic spirit as much as I did the night I was in the Capitol building. All generations, as diverse as possible, delegations of firemen from New York and California, it was, it was that, what do we used to say, you know, this is what democracy looks like. 
Well, the thing was that Obama never came to Wisconsin. He didn't have to come to Green, to, sorry, to Madison to occupy the Capitol. But let me give you an example of what Roosevelt did. So in 1934, the Kohler workers in, near Sheboygan, Wisconsin, went out on strike. And it was a, a, it was a murderous strike. They, 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 there were workers who got killed in the strike. Roosevelt came to Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is only 60 miles north of Sheboygan and Kohler. And he gave a speech on, because he knew he, was, he had a decidedly blue-collar audience in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he gave a speech in which he talked about American workers, that Americans, not American workers, Americans had to fight for their rights. And then he went on to say the degree, and he actually, you could hear it like, like he was hoping this, the words would reach down there. He made it clear the degree to which that his administration supported and, and was eager to advance working people's rights. Mm. I mean, it's a great speech. It's not one that people paid a lot of attention to over the time because it wasn't Pearl Harbor, it wasn't Fort Freedom. So imagine if Obama had at least extended words, or what if he had gone to Chicago, his own city, and spoken in a way that might have echoed up. I, I just think I, I, that's the thing that haunts me about Obama. I mean, I, I think the entire Democratic Party failed to show up when the recall vote happened. And I think that uh, that was a great opportunity Thank that, you. I'm was, glad you, uh, that you was missed. Yeah. That because indeed. I recall the recall. Um, and, you know, Scott Walker can't recall caring about the workers, but the workers cared about recalling Scott Walker. Yeah. Let me yeah. ask you something. Um, as an historian, you know, I think that we have to keep a mind on history all the time in relating to the occupant. That's what I call him, the occupant. Yeah. And both in terms of what's come before and, of course, the future, because I think Donald Trump's greatest enemies are not liberals or comedians or the deep state or investigators or even the plaque around his own heart. His greatest enemies are the historians that will simply tell the truth once he is dead. And he hasn't realized he can't mean tweet them into submission. So I, I draw a lot of inspiration from history in terms of getting through this time when I feel discouraged, when I feel like this country, the experiment is done. Um, have you had the experience as a person who is steeped in history of having people in your life, students, people in your community, uh, look to you for comfort, look to your wisdom and knowledge of history for comfort in this time? Because yeah. it is, uh, look, I don't think he's even the worst president of this century, but I do think that it is in many ways a very uh, a historical time. There's so many precedents here that we've never seen. Yeah, well, I'll go back. It's funny you ask me that because I don't know if everyone knows. We know each other several years now. And in the lead up to the 2016 election, I remember sitting in the studio with you and the question was, and you and I both said the same thing. I, I think, don't call me a liar, but I think we both said he's not going to get elected. I think the majority of people said that. Yeah, but I, but, and, but I think Frank was a little more worried. Okay. He was. Yeah. And I, and I thought, no, it's like 25% is, is, he can't go better than that. But what we hadn't done, you and I, and I live in Wisconsin, as we just said, is figured out that he figured out something that the others had not. And that was that most presidents, and this was Barack Obama, both his strength and his weakness, he tried to reach out beyond his base. Yeah. Obama, uh, with Trump. Trump kept running for the nomination. He ran, he, he literally figured out he wasn't going to try to speak to anyone but the people who might be angry enough to vote for him. I don't think he expected to win, though. I mean, I, well, it, everyone says that, but he had. I mean, I won really because don't think he, he won Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and he was visiting Wisconsin a lot. Right, but he won because forty-six percent 
of eligible voters stayed home. I mean, I overestimated the decency of American conservative Christians, and I... I, I underestimated uh, the apathy of America. And again, that's something I draw comfort from because whether Secretary Clinton deserved the smears against her or not, and generally I find the left has valid criticisms and the right has sexist, misogynist yeah. lies, really seriously. Um, you know, I think Trump managed to make people think to some degree that she was as shitty as he was. I had so many people tell me, these two, which one? And I'm like, what do you mean, which one? Do you, do you want to have the headache or the beheading? What are you talking about? Do you want the tourniquet or the open yeah, gashing right. wound? Yeah. And, and so, you know, I don't really understand how he's going to be able to keep 46% to stop voting this time because, uh, you know, bring all, all, all that dreariness. But yeah. but I, I know you get this. I know you get well, people coming okay, up to you because well, I get it all the time saying like, like yeah. you know, what? How, how do we get through this time? I mean, what comfort okay. is there in yeah. our history okay. when we've never had right. a leader like this, a man with no public service? I mean, I, I rattled, I could rattle off all the firsts of the impeachment. There yeah. were so many firsts. And this level of corruption, I would still say a lie about WMDs that killed a million people is more corrupt. But in terms of amounts of little bits of corruption this puts Warren Harding to shame right I mean we've never seen in terms of the amounts of incidents of corruption anywhere in our history by the way and I will not forget to answer the question you asked me I promise you but it is it's the corruption it's the crimes you know the kids on the border yeah the neglect of Puerto Rico the the violations of the emoluments clause he, he learned he probably learned this in the real estate industry who the hell knows where he learned to whittle away bit by bit and day by day at people's sensibilities and understandings to the point where if you, if you, could t- if you, if you take it all, right? If you take it all and you, and you actually write it out in a paragraph, he may well equal the worst of the worst. That's the thing, it, because he's literally sure. destroying He's destroying well, the idea. I, I think of he the could get there goods. in a second term, but I'm, I'm just saying, in terms of like a lie about WMDs that led to 5,000 yeah, dead soldiers, so, you know, that, that's, a million you know, dead Iraqis, you, got me on that. That you know, the rise of the Islamic State, throw in the housing market crash, throw in a global recession. I mean, you know, he's got a long way to catch up yeah, with W. See, and, worse human being yeah, than W. Right, yeah. um, not the worst. I would say Andrew Jackson, probably a worse person than Trump, though. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah as, we've re- as, we co- as we've come to know Andrew Jackson. That's why Trump admires him. Yes. As a ma- yeah, oh yes, such an absolutely. ignorant, uncouth bigot. Yeah, who, absolutely. With with, with yeah. no, right. you know, caring for human yeah. life. But, but, but I'm, I'm going to come really back to this good. question. Yeah, what do you when do when people, people see ask comfort? Me, the reason I mentioned it as I did was I spent so much time reassuring people he wouldn't be elected. Me too. That I realized that I had almost bought in for a brief while. I bought into my own words. You know what I kept saying to people when they would call me up? They, I'd say, look, he has to do better with Latinos than Romney. Okay, And they thought, oh, you're right. It yeah. won't happen. They didn't realize there's some macho yeah, assholes well, in the Latino voting I made the assuming block. that women would not vote for him. And I made the mistake, and then I saw more women go into a Trump rally than I saw men, and I knew we were in deep shit. I never knew 51% of white women were that dead inside. Uh, yes. But yeah. 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 But, yeah, but then, we're, then we're into the presidency, okay? And... Yeah, and I can tell you that I wrote this book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, <laughs> about FDR. And here's the thing. So there was this remarkable experience in the face of terrible catastrophes in the 1930s and the 1940s. And then, that, but the whole generation emerges from that. They were kids in the 30s, and then they fought the war, and they came back. And for all of their failings and all of their sins, and you and I both know the you know, humanity's uh, contradictions, 
It is the case that they hadn't forgotten the promise that they were raised with of the four freedoms, and thus the 60s saw civil rights and voting rights, and, and by the way, and, and civil rights as we know was not just for blacks, it was for women and it was for people of diverse religions. Um, and then the Great Society and the War on Poverty and the environmental laws were passed. I mean, they elected the most liberal, the most liberal Senate and House going those, in those days. Yes. So, okay, so then, but then, you know, things will set, call, f fell apart. The, the point is they didn't fall apart. Serious forces mobilized to bring an end to what we call the democratic upsurge of the 60s, which was similar to the democratic upsurge of the 30s. And we've and seen was never now, politically all that strong. I mean, Sorry? I was never politically all that strong. I mean, we were talking more about social upheaval yes. than, I mean, LBJ got a lot done, but he even he couldn't seek re-election. Right, but yes, that would take us into Vietnam. Right, right. I still but, want to get an answer to my question. Right, so, okay, so now we've had these 45 years of, seriously, what I call class war from above, a war on workers' rights and women's rights, voting rights. I mean, I don't think people quite realize it. And when you say voting rights, yeah. everyone assumes, once again, you're talking about just African-Americans. No, what happened in 2013 was directed at college kids and all low-income people. College and, kids, exactly. Oh, yeah, too. I mean, there's districts in this country where you can vote with an NRA ID, but not a student ID. And when you tell that to people, the response you'll get, because they're dumb, uh, people who support this will say, well, foreign students can go to an American college, but foreign students can't register to vote, so what's right. the problem? Right. And again, it was, and I had Jesse Jackson, by the way, on my TV show that oh, night that wow. the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. And I, I asked him, that exact question. I said, this is much more than just trying to find ways with these pre-clearance rules being thrown out to, to stop yeah. African-Americans. This affects seniors. This affects college kids. It, it affects all low-income people. Anyone who might have a difficult areas, time getting a federal ID. Right. They, they literally closed, in, yeah. say in Wisconsin, motor vehicle places where you could go to register to get a, you know, a license or to get an ID. They would close them to, or limit the number of hours they were open. I mean, they just literally wanted to reduce voter, oh, voter they, suppression. They make it the very hard to exercise a basic right. Yeah. So after all of these years of this, it's the question. so when people ask me, well, what do we do? How, how do we respond? And I tell them, well, actually, things are happening. I mean, these last several, I mean, Undeniably, it's 45 years, and one can get rather beaten up by 45 years. But think about, just think about these last several years, and think about how history could have turned. So for example, think about the lead up to, to 2016. Moral Monday movement, the anti-fracking movement, um, the, the fight for 15. Occupy uh, Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. The Wisconsin Rising itself right. told you that working people were getting fed up with this kind of abuse and denial of their rights. Now, when I say could have turned, in, in 2015, the polls showed, and they actually used this word, what kind of change do you want to see? And the majority of Americans said radical. Now, that wasn't clear if it was a right or a left radical. And what they got in the end for, because of their failure to turn out to vote, right, was the right, or what I prefer to say reactionary. But it is the case that these, these movements that began to percolate, they haven't gone away. They have not gone away. And I, and I feel a tremendous energy. It's, it's like it's just emerging in American life right now. The trick isn't whether or not it will do something in itself, the energy. It's whether or not... For example, the Democrats can get it together enough to somehow mobilize this and create, there was a term in the 30s, some kind of united front 
of progressives. But then I'll bring it to the thing that I want to see specifically in those terms. And that's what my newest book, Take Hold of Our History, is about. I think we really need to remind Americans of who they are in the sense of why do they feel the way they do? In other words, why do they know things aren't right? Because there was imbued in American life, and I think it was passed generation to generation, even if it wasn't always clearly articulated or written down in, in a way you could take a test on it, that what it meant to be an American was inscribed in that declaration as a promise. It had a notion of equality and a guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the, the, and the question is, are we going to limit the life to just you have a right to be born? Or are we going to say you have a right to live? And if you have a right to live, that means that you have needs. Or as Roosevelt once put it, necessitous men are not free men. He was quoting a judge whose name I don't remember. But so the thing is, if, so right from the beginning, there was this built in this sort of, if lack of better words, a social democratic promise. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it wasn't the Lockean life, liberty, and pursuit of property. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's embedded in, in the American mind. And it's a promise, whether you're native born or, or newly arrived, that this is a promise you, you take on. And you not only make it your own, and we make it our own, but we also then should feel a responsibility to not have it die. And, well, yeah, right. Because you're so we, still every generation has to keep fighting for it. Right. So we need to. Ha so we need to cultivate a narrative. Those of us of what do they call, you just call it in England the chattering classes. We need to cultivate a narrative. We need to grab hold of the history that enabled the advance of that kind of promise. And there's a, there's a quote by um, I can't remember actually. Or I do remember where I learned of it. It's Henry Demers Lloyd, 1900 progressive journalist, and I think he got it from Wendell Smith, the 19th century activist and abolition, workers' rights, and you name it, from Boston. And it goes like this. He said, liberty requires more than, def to sustain liberty, you must do more than be vigilant. To go back to the old, I think it would have been Patrick Henry. If we're going to defend the rights we have, we have to create new rights for our children. I love that line. I, I think that should be like I think that should be taught in every school and in every church. I just love that line. So uh, I'm getting the feeling that you you I mean, is there anything from history that we can use then? I mean, when people come to you seeking comfort in this time, what do you tell them? Well, I, I think about 1931-32, for example. Okay, I mean, I mean, dire circumstances, but. The likes of a Roosevelt and labor leaders such as Sidney Hillman and John Lewis, they sensed the percolation. And they were and the trick then was not just to, to know it, the trick was how to articulate it. John Lewis, a mine workers leader, I don't even know if he wrote the book himself, he published a book back and books mattered then very much, they still matter today. He published a book in which he talked about the, you know, the dictatorship, um, it sounds kind of Marxian, he wasn't a Marxist, the dictatorship of capital, but he talked, and what did he do to challenge all that? He goes back and he starts laying hold of the founding fathers. At that time, it would have been founding fathers. Uh, Sidney Hillman, there's a speech he gave back then, and he talked about the fact that, you know, we, we may be viewed, we textile, you know, textile workers, we may be viewed as, you know, as less than others, 
but, but we carry a promise within us. And he, he could see the making of socialism just in the way in which they were organizing. And Roosevelt himself had an incredible conf confidence in America. And in 1931, he said to a good friend in the middle of the Great Depression, when he was governor of New York, said, I think we need to make the country fairly radical for a generation. So you need we, th these kinds of leaders. And I think we're seeing the emergence of these kinds of leaders. I mean. I think so, too. I mean, if I can just, I don't know how you feel about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but. I think she's terrific. I, I, so do I. And when she won the seat in Congress, she was interviewed. I don't, again, I don't know if it was Anderson Cooper or somebody in 60 Minutes. She was interviewed. And they asked her something about, well, how can you be so confident you can pursue your kind of agenda? And she said, because that's what America's been about. And she cited Abraham Lincoln. She was cultivating the narrative. Unfortunately, even historians on the left criticized her for making a little too much of certain figures. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? This is exactly, I mean, you think of yourself as a left historian? Well, make people interested in history because it matters. <laughs> And she was doing that kind of thing. It's hard for me because I think of FDR and I think of someone who was able to unite the American people against an existential threat. Yeah. And I often have a hard time drawing comfort from that at a period where we have a leader who is an internal threat dividing the American people. I mean, yes. historically, we've never really seen anything like this. We've never seen someone who just kept on campaigning for his party's nomination, appealing to the most rightward part of his base, well through yeah. his first term into his campaign for the right. second. Right, and I said to you before something about it, history could have turned. I'm not trying to sell you on Bernie, on Bernie but. You know I like Bernie. I, do, I know you do. Bernie, Bernie Sanders, had he won that nomination, would have won the presidency. I'm inclined to agree, but I also am fond of saying, as you know, that we have no way of knowing how Trump would have smeared him or any other nominee. Yes, but Americans were looking for that for radical I agree. action. Oh, I agree, and I think he could have done okay. it with authenticity as opposed to yeah. you know rank bullshit. Yeah, and I, so my my point is is that that the vileness of Trump and the evil that he spews and the consequences that he's wrought would not have been the same. In other words, right. because, and I we would have point. cultivated yeah. that. In other words, the na Bernie didn't cultivate the narrative enough in 2015 and 16. He's doing it now. I mean, he's talk. He, it's literally like it's the resurrection of FDR. So the New Deal of the 30s, he's talking about a Green New Deal. And any of us who are parents or grandparents know that if you want a future for your kids, it's got to be a future on this planet. My concern is that you can't run on that campaign until you've had the depression happen already. And yeah, ironically, they, I fear Trump's second term. I'm not rooting for an economic downturn, although all signs seem to say that's going to happen. I, I actually think, wow, uh, if we get this guy for a second term, the only silver lining. Well, maybe if the Democrats get the Senate, uh, they can keep him in check. But the only silver lining is that um, you could get a true progressive, the most progressive president we've ever seen, he or she, in 2024. But I, I, I keep trying to find any precedent in U.S. history for the kind of president we have now. And, and there's really yeah. nothing. I mean, yeah. Andrew Johnson was a, was a racist dick. But, but, the Republic, but the radical Republicans were still in in. in control of things. I mean, he's, he's in many ways, you know, the first Confederate president of the United States of America. Yeah. And again, we've had others. And I'm even saying Bush is still worse. I'm sorry. Bush is, you know, in terms of human stuff, because I, I don't, I, I grade a leader, not just on their ability to articulate the moment in a moral way to bring people together. I also judge a leader 
okay. on how much suffering they can prevent. I, I judge a leader on how many people they help as opposed to how many they hurt. Okay, well, so here's the thing. Imagine if they had killed Obamacare. Then could you have, then we might have been having a different conversation because then you sure, would yeah. truly have a lot of people's deaths. On oh, his, yeah. Right? So, so well, who, on, on who? Than, on Obama? Remember, or, been, wait, wait. Deaths on who? On his watch or on him? On Trump. If, oh, on, remember, yeah. I mean, we know people now who can't afford to, get, to buy insulin. Oh, we yeah. So and, by the way, that's why, that's why John McCain did that, I think, Harvey. John McCain didn't kill Obamacare. He, he saved Obamacare. No, exactly. He saved the Republican Party because they all knew uh, they would own this thing in 2020 if it had happened. Yeah, I, I can't tell what was on John McCain's mind. Oh, who knows? Other than I, I will say this. As much as I'm prepared to, prepared to have scorned him in any number of occasions, he did something which he should be remembered for, the McCain-Feingold yeah. Act, okay, where they put constraints on campaign finances. And uh, <laughs> Yes, 2000 John McCain uh, is the guy that 2012 John McCain wouldn't recognize, but I do agree with yeah. you. Yeah, oh, so look, I mean, I don't have the answers to... There's no such thing as... You can't just hope, okay? You have to do more than hope. And the arc of justice, I don't know if it actually bends the way it ought to bend. What I do know is that it will never bend if we don't pull on it and we don't forge it and we don't do those things. And I think right now, damn the Democrats if they stand in the way of the Bernie movement because this is the only way right now to try to do it. And I know you, they're going to come after him and by the way, tonight, I, this won't be out by tonight, but tonight when I'm speaking out in Brooklyn as part of the Michael Brooks show, I know what I'm going to be saying. I'm going to be reminding people of how they tried to pull FDR down. Yeah. It, they used anti-Semitism, and yeah. he wasn't even Jewish, but they used it. Yeah. They, he, they used racism. Called him a socialist. They, they called him a socialist. Hell, they called him a communist. Class traitor. You know, class yeah. traitor. And, in, and he was a class yeah. traitor, thank, thank goodness, God. right? But it's the case. And I want them to, I, people have to be prepared, but they have to be prepared not simply to knee-jerk their reaction. And the fact is that, I, look, I despise that term Bernie bros, but it is the case that if people are already building up in their minds now how they're going to be angry later. They're wasting their emotions. Right. What they need to do right now is they need to be remembering that they're Americans and so are those other people who call themselves just plain liberals or progressives and not socialists. And, and what we somehow need to do is we need to create some kind of broad, popular, united front, not A, with a realizing that we must end the Trump presidency in 2020, B, that it's not just Trump, it's a Republican Party that enables him. And C, it's the case that we've got to realize not to believe the media stories. They, they, are, they, they think they're being critical. They're celebrating the Trump administration in many ways. They're, you know, this is like the longest running vaudeville show. It's the real collusion. Yeah, it's, right. it's, and, you know, which I've heard you say indeed. Right? They will give up these Trump size ratings when you pull them from their cold dead right. hands. And, it's, and, and I'm not trying, look, I, you know. I'm not talking about the journalists, by the way, I, or the yeah. TV reporters. I'm talking about the people who sign their checks. Right. Well, look, so here I'm going to patronize you for a moment. You know, Thank goodness for the likes of the Young Turks and their show. Thank goodness for progress in you and Dean and others, okay? I mean, there, it has developed this alternative media. And I think it's important. Bill Moyers once said to me, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do because smart television 
is, has, you know, it's, it's finished, basically. And we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do in the place of these newspapers that have served, however limited they may well have been. Once upon a time, there were more progressive newspapers. There were, more, there were labor radio shows. We're, I mean, we're going to have to figure all these things out. But this is the year we have to do it. You know, I, I'm fond of saying that Trump is sort of like a, uh, a less moral, less healthy, less attractive Nixon. And um, I'm wondering, is there any figure in American history, any political figure that comes close to him is there any example of a petulant millionaire at birth who's never had a day of struggle and never devoted himself to public service this is a very perverse administration i have to go to the roman empire for this i can't think of of an american political yeah yeah i mean this this really is the case because one thing i always one thing i was hoping for this is i was hoping that that if trump did get elected that his opportunism because I never thought of him having an ideology other than racism, perhaps, that his opportunism would, in, would lead him to do something. Th- I don't know if I should be happy he didn't. Imagine if he got elected and actually pursued national infrastructure projects that he said he was going to, as opposed to a wall. Yeah. Imagine if he had done that, he would have guaranteed a two-term presidency. I agree. Because I the Democrats would have agree. had to work with him. But this was the same thing with Bush, right? Like the thing that kept them from being effective at fascism was their stupidity. The yeah. the the, the, the right. stupid always outweighs the sinister. I call it dim shady. You know, like like Jared saying, "Hey, Dad, fire Jim Comey." Like they're just they're too fucking dumb to actually be as evil as they wish to be. <laughs> right. Right. Because. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing right now. I got. I don't know if you edit this later, but I got to calm myself down. <laughs> no, no, no. But you know what I mean. Like, like you know, yeah. it, it, the saving grace of this administration was uh, the same with Bush, and Bush did a whole lot of damage. But I mean, he didn't yeah. privatize Social Security. He didn't get away with a lot of the stuff he right, wanted to do, and that was Bush's pub- big second-term right. dream. Right. Yeah, and, right. and they didn't pull it off. Right, and you know that. Again, I want to just start and say, 45 years of this, you can go back basically to, it's actually, forgive me, I, you, may, you may be a fan of Jimmy Carter. This goes back to Carter. Like, like I said when we began, uh, I don't view any of these men or women as marble statues. Yeah, no, I will admire their good qualities Carter and I won't play dumb way, about their detriments. Carter paved the way to Reagan. It, I, I can lay yeah. that out on another show if you want. You know, but, a good man doesn't necessarily mean a strong leader. Yeah, well, he was actually a terrible terrible leader the, the things that he did during those years it, everything that Reagan went on to do the initiative began under under Jimmy Carter but anyways that wasn't where I was going to go my point is 45 years of this but it's 45 years of of corporate war on America conservative culture wars and neoliberal policies that have drained drained working people's lives and communities and basically speaking, you said, I think at the outset, or unless we were talking about it beforehand, the, the American promise right now is, is literally hanging in the balance. It's yes. hanging in the balance. And all I can say, I mean... I'll, I don't know if the American dream, I don't even know if retirement will exist. Yeah, anymore. I don't even use the word American dream anymore because, you know, I don't want it to seem like a fantasy. 
But the American, there was a revolutionary promise made. It was initiated by Payne. It was drafted yeah. by the founders. It was, it was built into the whatever. It was the immortalized sins of it, by know. de Tocqueville. I mean, you know, right? A Frenchman who comes to America, who told his he comes to America as a young aristocrat. He told his parents he was coming over to investigate American prisons. He was doing a report for the French right. government, yeah, yeah on right. American so, prisons. Uh, and along the way, he he fell in love with this country, with all of its contradictions. Um, and he despised how, you know, blacks and Indians were treated. He, he had pity on how women were yeah. treated here. But, you know, he came here, this French aristocrat, and he writes in the beginning of the book that, you know, in medieval Europe, the only way an individual rose in society was if they joined the church. The yeah. only way a poor person yeah. could become uh, rub elbows <laughs> with rich people is if he became a bishop. Yeah. And in America, he witnessed this culture that he couldn't believe where if you really worked hard yeah. and played by the rules right. that you could rise in society and then give your children a higher standard of living they in turn could do the same right. and this was so revolutionary to him and now i see a culture where people are saying oh millennials are the first generation in american history to have a lower standard of living and i'm like hello gen x we're not extinct yet it happened to us first yeah but it's, it's already been forgotten that, you know sorry you just remind you reminded i had completely blanked out actually i mean i still have my copy of, of the of the documentary you did the travel oh yeah the yeah and i just wish that i had known when you were doing it because i would have dragged you to green bay because that was the northwesternmost spot that Tocqueville came to visit. Ah, yeah, and nice. but yeah, but and what's interesting about Tocqueville's work is that there's a theme that runs through it, and it's built around equality. He actually, yes, he, it's built around equality. Now, not the idea of absolute equality, not in the in the sense of a communist Which doesn't utopia, exist. right? But it was the idea of equality of possibility and opportunity, mm -hmm. and basically speaking, that's what Roosevelt meant by necessitous men are not free men. If we disable people from the ability, which means if they are not enabled by resource to do these things, then we cannot be, claim to be the, the freedom-loving country we are. It, it almost seems like we, we can't really draw on history too much because there is no model for how to defeat a leader like this because first world free, I mean, Berlusconi, I guess, is, is close. I call him Silvio Berlusconi, yeah. but yeah. I mean, the morning after election day, 2016, I was getting coffee from an, uh, this Italian place uh -huh. and, uh, and, and the fellow, you know, ringing me up was, was from Italy and he literally said to me, I left Italy because of Berlusconi and now you elect this guy. <laughs> Yeah, well, again, and I, I really, it's, it's, yeah. I, I keep trying to go to history and I find the same inspiration from the same great men and women, but I find no model that in any way resembles the struggle that our generation is in right now. And when I say our generation, I mean everybody. I mean but, the, the boomers yeah. who care and the, and the Gen think Zs about who it, care. Think about if the people that we sometimes think should have been our leaders when they fail to become. Henry our, Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. I, Let's go very current, right? Sure. Think about Hillary so, Clinton. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Think about this turn. So Hillary Clinton, a couple of weeks ago, it comes out in that film series she's done and right. all that. That basically she scorns Bernie Sanders. Yes. And look, if if people don't realize why she scorns him, she, they don't understand. She was she felt she was entitled. So it didn't bother her just that she lost. It bothered her that anyone bothered to challenge her. That's why she felt about Barack Obama in 2008. Yeah, I don't know for sure that's true, but I think that's a little projection there, right? I mean, like, I don't know for sure that's true, but uh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I do believe if she had picked Bernie Sanders as her running mate, she'd be running for her second term right now oh, because absolutely. there would have been a wave of enthusiasm oh, from his geez. voters. Or how about this? How about? But I also think Bernie voters who then turned and voted for Trump, despite Hillary, are the worst people in the world. They're worse than Trump okay. voters, and they never I, cared I, about what I Bernie didn't. cared so about. 
Yeah, yeah. Anything. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. I mean, I, you know. No, listen. I tell right. I tell my Bernie fans all the time. If they yell at me for voting Hillary, I say I voted for her the day Bernie told me to. Right. I swore I'd never vote for another Clinton after Bill. Yeah. But sure as hell, I wasn't going to fail to vote for Hillary. Well, Clinton I mean, with for all her detriment, she's lightly Hillary Clinton is not going to be pulling us out of the, the Paris right. Accord or stealing children at the border, or she's not going to be giving a massive tax cut to the wealthiest Although Americans. Although she had endorsed the re- she. Don't forget, she was she was Secretary of State when they were repatriating the kids. Right, but that's not the same as the family separation yeah, policy. Right. I, which but, is monstrous. Yeah, but let me get to what I was going to say. Please do. Okay. What I was going to say is imagine if she had been bigger than herself. What if she thought to herself, even selfishly, maybe I can get a seat on the Supreme Court for a couple of years, something, whatever. What if she had said, when they asked her about Bernie, she said, she said, whatever my disagreements with Bernie... If Bernie gets that nomination, we need to rally behind him. Well, that I'll agree with, yeah. Okay, that's my point. So think about how, by the way, think about that one turn of phrase, how it might have made a difference already moving into all of this. But that's for all of us, though. I mean, there's a lot of Bernie fans that need to be able to say that about Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. Right. I mean, like, you know, this kind of absolutism also because historically, and you can articulate this better than me, but like there's no one person in history who's ever made a difference. There are leaders who are eventually put there by movements who can pass the baton, who can move the needle, but individuals don't generally have that huge an impact on history on their own in a vacuum. They are produced by movements themselves. And I, I feel like even if Bernie Sanders gets there and has a Democratic Supreme Court and a, I mean, a Democratic House and Senate, um, he's not going to be able to magically bring about all these things, especially if Mitch McConnell is still running the Senate. When Bernie did my show, I always ask him, how are you going to get Mitch McConnell to come yeah. to the table in ways Barack Obama couldn't? Isn't it to some degree all of these people are passing the baton. It was the work of all the abolitionists that allowed Lincoln to do that. It was the work of all the AIDS activists and LGBT activists and the folks across the street from us at Stonewall that eventually allowed Barack Obama to take credit as the president who gave us marriage equality. Right. And look, I've been always I'm critical of Hillary when I'm when I'm with you. Maybe because That's okay. you're more sympathetic. But no, 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 no. I'm. But I'm, I'm now going to make my. I'm, I'm critical I'm, and defensive of all of them. I I understand. I read. I, you've heard me registered this in brief. My criticism of Bernie. But now I'm going to make it all the stronger. But it's a it's a retrospective <laughs> critique because this time he's this time he's transcended the problem I identified last time. I mean, I, I wanted Bernie from the beginning. I'd followed his career since the 1980s when he was up in Burlington, Vermont, running for mayor. And I thought, geez, one day I'd like to vote for a guy like that. I thought the same thing years ago. Yeah. Okay, so, but here's the thing. Why the hell, in 2015, couldn't Bernie have made the, the theme of his campaign what he's been doing this time? That is, why wasn't he cultivating the narrative then? He did it once. When I say cultivating the narrative, I mean reminding Americans that they're Americans. And what was he doing in 2015? Now I'm going to sound like Hillary Clinton. Watch. Except for one moment, which I'll come back to. He was talking about Scandinavia. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. Now, I can tell you out in the Midwest, however many of them come from Scandinavia, nobody's going to vote for a candidate who runs for the prime minister of, of Sweden or Denmark. They want to know they're voting for an American. Right. Now, I don't mean this in the, in the crude sense. What I mean is, can I, re- I'm gonna, this is a little part of it, Michael Moore's movie, Capitalism. Where Do We Invade Next? Oh, no, Where Do We yeah. Invade Next or something to that effect? Yeah, it's a good film. Where Do We Invade Next? 
most people missed the point of that movie. He wasn't doing it to show you what Europeans were doing that was so smart. His point was, everything they were doing was initiated by Here. us. We've, and in many cases, we've done it before. Yeah, right, exactly. So why couldn't Bernie have picked up on that theme and talked about the talked about Abraham Lincoln, talked about Franklin Roosevelt, talked about the American labor movement, the American populist, quote Thomas Paine. I mean, even if he wasn't going to win, he would have been cultivating the narrative that would have cultivated the narrative that AOC was trying to pick up on, that would have cultivated the narrative so that indeed in 2020, Bernie Sanders is the American figure. Well, uh, yeah. So that's my criticism. But having said that, this time around, we've seen him do what he should have done. And if only because it, look, for years I've been arguing for this kind of stuff. And for the first time, I can go talk to people, even on the further left, who feel disempowered from knocking America, the American story because Bernie has somehow started to recover it of FDR and the New Deal, of things like that. And all of a sudden, I actually find people saying, oh, man, you're right. Sorry, I, this is immodest. So a couple of years ago, this is from another direction, I got invited by the League of Women Voters to give their keynote address in the state of Wisconsin. And I said to them, do, do you realize what my politics are? They said, yeah, do you realize we've been moving? I said, fine. And I gave them the talk that closes this new book. Rem, you know, we are radicals at heart, okay? Make America radical again. And I had 150 people solidly with me. Now, they weren't far left. These are people who were centrist, some even Republicans. But the fact was, they were waiting to hear this kind of story. And that's what we ought to be hearing from a Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden, for that matter. The, the Democrats have an obligation to cultivate the narrative. I mean, I, I, want, I want Bernie more than ever, but, right. th- but it's the case. And by the way, I've never even spoken to Bernie Sanders. I'm not a surrogate of his. But, he's a, uh, you know, he's a nice guy. You know, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I've met him several times. He's, he's a nice I'm, guy. I, that's what and people his tell me. His wife is very nice. I ha- just to confess, I mean, I've done the Bernie Sanders podcast with this press secretary. I've done that stuff. So yeah. I, presumably somebody up there knows what I'm doing. So then let me let me ask you this. Um, and I thank you for making all this time. While no, you're no, here, John, I, you're, you, you can edit this out. I've always <laughs> said to you, you may not have a PhD, but you are clearly one of the smartest and, and well-informed people mm, I know. Thank you. I'm just a charming sociopath, I promise. <laughs> no, I, I, my dad was a history teacher, and I sucked at yeah. sports, so this is how I had to earn his love. Um, what gives you hope in 2020? As an historian, what gives you hope considering the creeping fascism here, the seeming ability to walk between the raindrops and violate whatever laws with impunity and the seemingly ceaseless democratic civil war between moderates and and liberals what gives you hope in 2020 that's a great question but there's it's a little one-dimensional what gives you hope it i have fear and hope I don't doubt it. I'll ask both then. Tell me what what's, what do you what dread gives first? me fear? What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? What keeps me up at night is the possibility that I can't do what that Henry Demers Lloyd said. You want to defend your liberty? You've got to create fresh rights for your children and grandchildren. And I feel that having come out of the generation of the '60s, I think to myself, I know we've made great strides socially, me, socially, culturally. But I also know that we literally have lost our rights. And, and I, What do you mean by that? Well, I lost my rights as a public employee in Wisconsin. I oh, don't yeah, have the right yeah. to collectively bargain. Right. Um, they liter- they've, 
they've raped the university system budgetarily. That's true. That's true. Okay, and I think about my students. I mean, <laughs> and that's what this is about, really. Look, I look going to my classes, and there are times where I say to them, and I. You know, teaching at Harvard must be a blast. That's all I can say because the resources are tremendous. Because I look at my students and I say, have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? And they've never been. And I said, I'd like to take you on a walking tour of the, of the monuments. And I'm going to show you what the real patriotic story is of a Washington Monument of a revolutionary general. Okay. Of yeah. the Jefferson Memorial that with all the man's contradictions, the drafter of the Declaration of Independence. The uh, Lincoln Memorial, men shot because he had the audacity to propose that better educated blacks should have the right to vote. Yeah. Okay. Um, FDR, who struggled against folks who used everything in the book to try to tear him down. Oh, you think Bill Clinton was despised in office and Hillary Clinton? My yeah. God, what FDR and Hillary and, and I and the, and the World War II Memorial, which yeah. took a lot of critical abuse when it was first opening. But so where's you know, the that was my what parents' you, generation. What do you so, dread? So what my regret is I can't say to them, Let's go. I can't say let's go because even if even if they had a week to go, the, a lot of them are working. They don't even have the, the wherewithal to go. Oh, well, let me you look. Know? Why do we need so many immigrants? Because we're not going to run out of we're going to run out of people because no one can afford to have as many kids as they want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I know plenty of people who would I mean, seriously, the economics are such that, you know, we're going to have to have more immigrants to take care of us yeah. when we get old because yeah. we're having fewer babies because you cannot raise children the way our parents generation yeah. could yeah. with this 50 year right. economic okay. trend. But then what gives me hope? What gives you hope? Those students. Those students yeah. seem, they seem undaunted. You know, they don't have the resources. I don't think they're as well-educated as they should be. I think, I think the schools are failing them in many ways, but they've got this, they, they still make it happen. And, and, and they, they, whether they wanted, War, whether they want Warren or Bernie, whatever else, even the ones who want Trump, the other day after his State of the Union address, some of them offered criticisms of what he had to say, which means there's there's that's a thinking it's generation, thinking. yeah, and maybe they were them better than my generation. Then here's my last question: I, When I look at you know the last fifty odd years in history, there's two two patterns I see. Uh, one, Democrats only get the White House after Republicans have cocked it up. Jimmy Carter got in because of Watergate, Bill Clinton because of trickle down twelve years, Obama because of you know who. And um, that was the one area where I thought maybe Hillary Clinton couldn't get it for the same reason Al Gore didn't get it. Although in reality, both of them did get it. We've already elected our first female president. Just a clause in the Constitution <laughs> kept her out. But I, I look right. at the struggle. That's, we should never forget that. Yeah, and it, never forget that. And I look at the struggle, right? And it seems like our history is, you know, five steps forward, three steps back. Five steps forward, three steps back. So, in other words, you you have um, it's certainly true of civil rights. You know, you end slavery, but you get Jim Crow. Uh, you get civil rights, but then you get the drug war, and you know. So, so like I look at I look at um, you have you have Nixon and Ford, but then Jimmy Carter is moral and and tries to move it ahead a little bit. Solar, great. Uh, Reagan and Bush, twelve years, awful. You got Bill Clinton, who while hardly uh, you know the world's most profound liberal is light years more liberal than George H.W. Bush and moved us forward in so many ways. I mean, he actually ran on pro-gay you, you're, rights. You're saying my eyes are a little skeptical. Of Hang what you're on saying. a second. He <laughs> ran for pro-gay rights, taxing the wealthy more. I'm yeah. saying basic We're, things that we take for granted now because we are more liberal. Another example. And you have, then we slide back with Bush. Then you get Obama, who's more progressive than Bill Clinton in many ways. Then you slide back with this guy. My point is, 
I'm optimistic that whoever the next president is, whenever it is, will be the most progressive ever because everyone running now is more, everyone in this democratic field is more progressive than Barack Obama was in 2008 or Bill Clinton was in 1992. And it seems like that's the trend. As a matter of fact, the Republicans are getting dumber. Their nominees are getting stupider and more corrupt. And the Democratic nominees are getting ever more progressive and, forgive me, woke. Yeah, well, uh, let's play alternative history for a brief moment. Imagine Hillary was elected and she would never have lived up, she would never have been on her own the progressive that people might have imagined. No one ever has been. No, no, but it is the case that those movements I was referring to prior to 2016 may well have been the propulsion Absolutely. To, make her, to have her do what she would never have imagined herself doing. Now, similarly, that here's the thought. If the movements matter, if Bernie were to win, I think we can accomplish remarkable things, at least start remarkable things. If, let's say, Joe Biden recovers, right? And let's imagine he wins the presidency. One possibility that I'm afraid of is that his instincts, which have been so neoliberal, if he pursues his instincts, then we're in trouble and we'll see worse. We'll see Don Jr. as our next president or Ivanka. Okay, but if the movements don't scorn America, but see this as an opportunity to push him where he wouldn't otherwise go, that's a reason to hope. Right. Okay. I agree. So I think scorning, scorning. I mean, but when you say scorning America, what I mean is sort of become cynical about it. Okay. Yeah. Cynicism and scorn. It may be two steps, two different steps, but I just don't want to generate. Trump won on cynicism, but only because it was the lowest. Yes, he he did win on cynicism. I can tell you, he provided hope to one slice that I knew in Wisconsin. By the way, I mean they had some serious concerns that. Hillary was not properly addressing, but that's not the point. They just wanted to punch someone in the nose, and he seemed to be the vehicle to punch the Republican and Democratic establishments. <laughs> yeah, the the someone was themselves. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, you know what? I have. This is funny. I think more of my fellow citizens than you do. Okay. No, no, I think I, I, I but disagree. I, but I, I, th- I just, I just realized that the Democrats, in some ways, is that the Democrats failed them, because if. The Democrats failed them. There was a Clinton machine. Bernie didn't have a chance to win that election. And he ran an incredible campaign that surprised everyone. And all of those folks under 50 who voted in the Democratic primaries, they went with Bernie. I mean, we could spend a lot of time on that, but I just... I I always said Hillary Clinton should have chosen Bernie as her running mate. And I think in many ways, the smartest thing Bernie could do is choose Hillary Clinton as his running mate. You want to talk about healing? Well, I just wish he were younger so he could have promised her a seat on the Supreme Court, in which case... Yeah. I agree. She would have said, elect this man. I also think Joe Biden's smartest VP choice would be uh, Barack Obama, but uh, <laughs> which is legal, right, Professor? You actually, could have, actually, but he can't. You could be, have a former president a, on the ticket. You know what? That's an interesting constitutional Barack, question. He wouldn't but be, since he, the he, Republicans he, have crapped all over the Constitution, what the hell? Well, let's say Joe Biden has Barack Obama as a vice president. Not that this will ever happen. <laughs> and by the way, Michelle Obama is the one VP that everyone should go for. Think about it. But if, if he had, he could run with Barack Obama as a, his vice president, and then, God forbid, President Joe Biden dies, Barack Obama could serve out the term, but Barack Obama could not then run again as an incumbent. You, you Correct? Know, Correct? Sorry. Am I right about this? I'm it, having this I, argument with somebody. Only because I like you, I'll say yes. Because <laughs> I, I don't actually know. I, I have no idea. Know. But I'll tell you this. It, this sounds like a fun game, this part of it. So I've always told you, I, whenever I come into the city, I want to be on your show, please. 
and because I, I really don't like doing the call-in stuff. But if Bernie gets to the point where the, the nomination is all but locked up and you want to have an evening symposium on who should he choose for vice president, okay, I'm willing to call in if I can't come to the city. Sure. Okay. I, I suspect he's already got someone in mind, whoever it might be. I mean, be. I have in mind someone. He said it would be a woman. Yeah, I, I, I think I know who it would be. He didn't tell me because I haven't talked to him. I, have a, I can imagine it's going to be Stacey Abrams. When, when, Bi- when Biden pulled that stunt... He knew what he was doing, even though it backfired on him. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think that I, anyone who's, if a white male is running, it's going to be likely a woman of color. Sure, I, that's. I would hope so. Okay, and and or maybe a southern woman of color as well. Right, make those votes count. I mean, Kamala Harris brings a lot to the table, uh, but California is not a state you need to go for. No, definitely not. And. Uh, so, you know, well, listen, yeah. I, 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 I could dovetail this into a conversation about all the ways that the Trump administration would smear Bernie Sanders, because there's a reason yeah. Hugh Hewitt and all these evil motherfuckers want Sanders to be the nominee. But that's another conversation. That is definitely another conversation. Uh, Harvey K., I thank you so much for giving up your time oh, John, in you, New York. No need to thank me. This has been a blast. Thank, thank you. you. What is the best way for our listeners to uh, follow you online and learn more about what you okay, do? Okay, so it's Harvey J.K., so it's H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. And I make every effort to respond to every single person who follows me, <laughs> even if it's to say hello. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us oh, today. Thank you. Imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's your secret weapon? And there it is. Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under eye bags and wrinkles disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to triplexiderm.com and enter voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter voices at triplexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mention code voices. Plexiderm is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee, so to get our special discount, enter voices at triplexiderm.com. Thanks again to Professor Harvey K. Um, I love his book. He's a great guy. And uh, follow him on the Twitter. He's all over the place. A um, couple things. According to the Federal Reserve, the total U.S. household debt rose 1.4% to more than $14 trillion in the fourth quarter of last year. So that's the biggest jump in debt levels in 12 years. Okay, that's like... 128 million households, the average debt of each one is a hundred plus thousand dollars. It's a staggering amount of debt. So much winning. So uh, there's a lot of reason to be concerned. And that's why this election matters. That's why you don't get to vote third party, especially if you're in a battleground state. And if you are in a battleground state, make sure you are registered to vote and make sure everyone you know is registered to vote and donate money to Lyft drivers for old folks. Just get people voting. Also, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman Synagogue, they're accepting letters of support. If you want to send it to uh, Congregation Adat Ryan, 6500 Westbury Oaks Court. Springfield, Virginia, 22152. That's lovely. Um, and finally, I, I hate to tell you this, but it's it's not looking good for Joe Biden um, with the predictit.com online market. Uh, his shares cost 43, 43 cents on January 8th. 
And now Joe Biden's share is on predictit.com go for 11 cents. Bernie's 48 cents. Bloomberg's 28 cents. Pete's 14 cents. Joe Biden's down to 11 cents. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Hate wisely. Uh, oh, I'm doing some live shows. Please. Um, we just did our first show, by the time you hear this, with myself and Lewis Black and Alan Zweibel as the Magnificent Bastards. Watch for us coming soon to a town near you. A lot of sexy liberal shows coming up, including... Um, Madison, Wisconsin in March. We're going to be going, I'm going to be doing shows on that tour in uh, Miami, Boston, uh, Minneapolis, Chicago, uh, all over the place. Um, hopefully, a lot, of, a lot of cities I want to get to. So hopefully we'll be doing those. New York as well. I'm also going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the uh, Revolutions International Theater Festival's uh, Free Speech Festival a festival in a festival and that's going to be in the end of uh, March um, and then we're going to DC as well I think I'm doing a lot of fundraisers this year I'm, I'll be all over the road so please please come out and come to a live show and be around other nice sane attractive uh, people please do uh, in the meantime go to johnfuglesang.com johnfuglesangstore.com we sell all kinds of cool resistance swag made in America unlike Donald and Ibanka's stuff and uh, in the meantime I just want you to remember something as of the time of this recording we are now six weeks into the new year, which means your gym's not crowded anymore. Okay? The resolution people, they're gone. So go enjoy the machines. They're there. Do something for your brain and your body. We need you healthy. We need you around. Donald Trump eats nothing but crap. He uh, sleeps four hours a night. He is an alleged amphetamine addict, and uh, he can't control his rage. It's very important that you outlive Donald Trump. My friend Jennifer died this week. Um, Jennifer Field Summer is a photographer, and uh, many of you have written me, many of you know her from uh, her social media presence. Um, Jen has uh, taken some photos of me over the years. Whenever I was playing in the Midwest, she would come from her home in Kentucky and, uh, and come to the shows, and she shot myself, she shot Hal Sparks and Stephanie Miller and um, Frangela at the various sexy liberal shows over the years, in, in God, from Madison to Chicago. Um, a great life force, a true hippie chick. Someone who was just uh, one of the most loving and outgoing people I've ever had the privilege to, to meet. And um, some of you know that uh, her husband died about two weeks ago. So what this means is that um, their 16-year-old child, Dakota, has now become an orphan. Um, in one month, a 16-year-old boy has lost both of his parents. Uh, this might mean nothing to you. Maybe it will. But I encourage you to go to her website, Jennifer Field Summer, or go check out her stuff on Facebook. Um, Mike Meyer's brother Paul wrote me about it the morning she died. And when I saw that my my inbox was blowing up, I, I thought, uh-oh, because I, I knew it was coming. Um, her aunt has been taking care of her, and I've spoken with her. It's really sad when someone dies young, especially someone who's got a young child. I mean, it's just everything with, with all that there is to hope for. So what does it mean um, when someone dies so young? Um, my, another one of my close friends' brother just diagnosed with a devastating cancer diagnosis. What it means is this. This could end any time. We're still here. What are you fighting for? And what are you doing to make the world better for people you will never meet? What are you doing to show love to people who can never help you? What are you doing to create more empathy in a world where it's sorely lacking? 
Thank you all for listening to this. Thank you for fighting the corruption, moral laziness, and rot that is Donald Trump. I promise you it's going to pay off. You will be so proud of yourself when you're old over how you conducted yourself during this time. And I am very proud you listen to this little podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks to everyone at the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network, especially Chris Lavoie. Keep it tuned here and listen to my show on Sirius XM Progress. Rosario Dawson just came on. That was exciting. She brought her boyfriend, Cory Booker. Oh, you know, guy kind of killed my buzz. He was lovely. He's going to come on the show too. So thanks a lot. <laughs> this has been a long one. I appreciate your patience. See you next time on the Senate Cast. Peace. Peace.